0: you have the people that don't take care of them and they'll last a lot less you'll have people that really take care of them they'll last a lot more what's the average expectancy of a rotary engine hey i'm steve and i'm lance we're curious car guys welcome to launch control hey what's up guys it's lance abraham and i am here with chris ott from rotary performance over here in dallas or a suburban Dallas, and uh, what we're going to talk about today is dispelling uh, some of the myths around rotaries. Talking about what's good about them, what's different about them uh, from a guy that has lived and breathed this for many, many years now. <laughs> so uh, I'll give you a, a quick background on how I know Chris, and then we'll we'll get to talking here a little bit. So um, I actually own a FD RX7 uh, it's a 1995 model. It's the, it's the curvy one for those of you who aren't well versed in it. And, um, when I had bought this car, I drove it up and the first place I brought it to was Rotary Performance and and Chris took a look at it. And, uh, we thought that it was just going to be like a general maintenance thing. And then it turned into a, uh, because of where the oil leak was located, it turned into an engine drop and then it turned into an engine minor rebuild and, all that good stuff. And the good news is for nine years strong now, that car has been bulletproof reliable, <laughs> but um, it's been bulletproof reliable because we, we keep up on it. And, and Chris and the team here at Rotary Performance have been great um, with it. So Chris, why don't you give us, a I, I thought what we could do first is give an intro to Rotary Performance as a business. You guys have been around for a really long time. You're actually one of the the pioneers in the rotary, uh, the rotary area, yeah. or the rotary space. So tell us a little bit about how it started, and how you got involved, and and let's let's hear the
1: story. All right. Well, Lance, thanks for having us and having me uh, with you. This is a you know a rotary performance. We've been in business since May of 1988. It's a long time. Yeah. And <laughs> rotaries for me goes all the way back to 1974 oh no kidding yeah okay seriously my dad was a university professor up in Columbia Missouri and he wanted to get one of those newfangled gadgets the rotary engine <clears throat> and they had um, you know the the RX4 they had a station wagon version of it okay and that became our new family car and we had that uh, car all the way up to the point where I was learning to drive. Wow,
0: so what was the rotary wagon
1: called? What model was it? I knew they came RX out the RX-3. Okay. It was a, They had the RX-2, 3, and 4. All three of those were available in a, in a uh, two-door sedan, a four-door sedan and also a station wagon. That's wild. Yeah, and also in '74 they had the rotary pickup, which they had up through the late '70s. Also, that's a U.S. anomaly that wasn't anywhere else in the world. Okay. But we had the um, that RX4 station wagon. I think of it fondly because that's where it all really began. Yeah. And so as a youngin' with one of those, and uh, that was a car that was given to me as my first car, and it didn't run right it had been retired from family use for years and uh, uh, so we tried to get it repaired the Mazda dealer nobody could fix it Mm -hmm. we took it to a couple of specialists or import specialists in those days and they couldn't fix it either and so um, I ended up having to just learn how to work on it and tinker with it and uh and eventually i got a two-door sedan version of an rx4 so how old were you when you started tinkering uh i was 16 okay so this was in high school and so it was uh and i had friends that got into uh i got rx4s also my sister had an rx7 she's a little older than me she was in college and uh you know we had uh Uh, We had been living in Dallas at that time already and uh, before I'd been living in Lubbock and so ended up going to Texas Tech University for computer science. And while I was out there, uh, there were a lot of people that had rotary engine cars and nobody knew what to do with them and so so I would work on it. So they were popular? Rotary engines were popular at that time? Even though people didn't necessarily... uh, uh, Rotary engine cars used to be made by the hundreds of thousands
0: No kidding. And so
1: people just don't think about that. But in the disposal mindset of the United States, the way that we are here, those cars, you know, the mean time between uh, the lifespan of a car is about 12 years. Okay. And nowadays, back then, people would, after three to five years, they would get rid of their cars. And so all those old RX4s and RX2s became refrigerators and Mm -hmm. washing machines. Yeah. But there were a lot of people that they... uh, uh, you know, rotary engine cars especially in those days they it was uh, you had a lot of people that are in technology jo- jobs you have people that are college students and then you have military personnel that tended to be the three people that were that gravitated to the rotary engine
0: that's so interesting cuz during that time frame you had you know gas prices shoot up you had oil crises and this mm-hmm. and that and just the nature of that motor didn't really lend itself to being as efficient so like was there something in particular that drew people to it other than the cool factor or was it really just those kind of people that bought them just bought them for it because they were different
1: well you had the uh in the uh, you know the gas crisis of the 70s almost killed mazda they were they had they had uh bet big on the rotary engine and that was an identity to them, just like the horizontal opposing six-cylinder is to Porsche for the 911, the uh, horizontal opposing for the Subaru. Mazda was all about the rotary engine, but the gas crisis and the emissions laws, they were chasing that dramatically, and, and it just did not lend itself to a sedan any longer, mm-hmm. at least for the United States. Okay. And so they were looking for a replacement for the RX-3. And so the RX-3's replacement is what we know as the first generation rx7 yeah and so it was two-door it was sporty it had a unique style and they made them like crazy really? i mean the first generations they just made so many of those cars and that's what took off and the uh, second generation the third generation i know we uh they they have become iconic but really the car that took off for mazda was the first generation rx7
0: yeah And was that what made it take off as opposed to the RX3? Because you have the same type of power plant. Mm -hmm. Was it, and you know, a lot of the times these days, a sports car is something that oh yeah it's cool you know but it's more just a halo effect it's not a huge seller where you're
1: saying they that kind of took off in terms of sales volume so oh, they they sold like crazy and the uh, look at the 280zx's that were selling the yeah. two, the 240 then the 260 280 and the 280zx uh along and you had uh um uh, Toyota really didn't have anything in those days. They had the, the Celica, which wasn't yeah. of that, that style. That was yeah. more like the RX-3. But the um, uh, the Corvettes and uh, the people, were they were thirsty for sports cars in those days. It was uh, when you were still allowed... To, it, there were hardly seat belt laws. Yeah. You didn't have passenger side airbags. And the demographic that is attracted to a sports car is a little bit younger. And that younger demographic... It's harder to do that today yeah. because of baby seats mm-hmm. that's the biggest reason why you don't see it as much today but in those days it was all the rage people just like today people will commonly want to buy a Jeep and they'll want to get that out uh, they'll they'll have it for a year or two and they'll get it out of their system and they set it free yeah everybody has a RX-7 story. Somebody knows somebody in their family that had one of those things, and either they think of it lovingly or they think about it hatefully. It depends on how they how they treated the car, how their maintenance was on it. Just uh, you know, a lot of different reasons. But yeah. I mean, it was uh, they became a a deep part of car culture. Yeah. Starting then. Yeah.
0: Well, you know what? We're gonna come back to that because I do want to talk about why people have a love hate relationship with these things. But I, I, let's finish your story about how you sure. how you came across and building rotary performance. So you were there, you were tinkering. There were a lot of different things that are going on that made the RX seven take off. Um, by that time you're well into tinkering. Yes. Um and doing some things. So, what happened next?
1: Well, I was um, I, I was in Lubbock at Texas Tech University, a computer science major, and doing just fine at it, and yeah. uh, and working on cars for people on the side. And they'd they'd pay me to replace a clutch or fix a hydraulic problem or do a brake job on them, um, but there was a uh, there was a Mazda dealer out in Lubbock called Mirrors Mazda that was uh, that had a supercharged RX three, and I would go out and watch them drag race that car, <clears throat> and it would do a little wheelie and 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 go down the quarter mile and what appeared to me to be an absolute amazing. 13 second quarter mile yeah and it was really neat to watch it was loud it was gnarly all the things that you would want as a youngster and so I wanted to do some of that and so I started learning a little bit from what uh, what they would uh, what they would divulge and then the rest of it I just had to start figuring out myself Uh, I came back to Dallas uh, after my first summer in college and I wanted to buy parts and and uh, to be able to order parts from some of the parts vendors like Racing Beat, they're deep in the rotary engine yeah. world. They've been around since the early '70s. They would only sell if you had a if you had a business. And so I uh, decided, okay, I'll just file a DBA. And so I went down and filed a DBA, Rotary Performance Automotive, and this is in 1987. And so I was uh, working on cars at, uh, uh, that summer out of my parents' house. And uh, the city of Richardson didn't like that very much. They, um, and they said I needed to become legit or, uh, or cease and desist yeah. in, either way. And so I just, I just made a decision at that point that I would do college part-time and just start working on cars. Huh. And so it just began right then. So what made you, that's something that I'm always fascinated by, what made you
0: actually take the leap because college is probably what everybody around you wanted mm-hmm. to do, right? Yes. Or was told that they wanted to. do. So, like, and all of us, you know, feel like we, we have that in us, but not many people take the leap. So what influenced you to take the leap and say, well, you know what? I'm going to throttle back on college, and I'm going to see what happens with this, this side gig that I have.
1: Well, it was... Um the the work working with the with the cars it was a passion of mine I enjoyed it immensely I liked the people that I was meeting yeah. and it was just a it was an it was an interesting world a, a niche that I had found and I had the uh, I guess really what it came down to is that I just felt that I really didn't have anything to lose when you're starting out at that young of an age just starting out in a business and it was uh, it was just it just was an interesting thing to do, and just it just grew from there. Yeah, uh, I had a uh, I had a uh, person that I had met that uh, in all places the newspaper in those days. <laughs> I was looking for parts, and uh, you'd go to the classifieds, and there was a guy that was parting out an RX seven. I contacted him, and the engine that I wanted to uh, that I wanted to buy, he had already sold it, but he knew uh, he had some other parts that I was interested in and he needed somebody to install parts and so it fed me with a continuous amount of work for years yeah and there was a guy named Al Jones and he was just he was great he just, uh, just it, it became this relationship of, uh, whenever he would sell parts he'd send the person over to uh, over to me we would install them fix the car and, and uh, just learned as we went. I never got trained professionally as a mechanic, yeah. uh, but decided to seek all the um, all the certifications at a young age. It was uh, ASE certified technician, master ASE by the time I was, I think I was twenty or twenty one, something like that. Yeah. And uh, but it just uh, our decision to never cut corners and to always try and figure out what was going on with the cars led us to have a very loyal clientele that some of them are still clients to this day that go back to you know the first or second year that we were ever open
0: yeah oh wow that's amazing they still have their
1: cars yeah it's crazy that's
0: a good sign yeah yeah still running them Yep. so how many Tell. okay so you know what we'll get to that part i'm getting ahead of myself so you started rotary performance um you're doing this part-time while you're going to college at what point did this become a okay this is going to
1: be what i what i do with my life full, time, time, full time it was uh, may of 1988 i can tell you the, uh, the exact day may 19th 1988 because it was when i decided to get a commercial lease in this building and it was uh, th- that was uh at that point I had and I didn't realize how much it really cost to go into business and Mm. so I'd saved up what I thought was enough money for rent for uh, but then you also get uh, you have to have insurance and all the other things Uh, the permits you have to get from the city which by the way uh, the city of Garland when I went visiting cities to try and figure out what city to be in tried to be over in Carrollton or over in Addison and Richardson yeah but they all where the moment you said it was an automotive business, they wanted to have, you know, some of them wanted an environmental impact study, some of them wanted to have, you know, just, it was just too much for a, at that time, 19-year-old kid to be able to really grasp or really want to do, and so it was going to delay things by so much, and the cost involved was so immense that I ended up coming over to the city of garland and they walked me through the entire process oh, no kidding and so okay. and they made it so easy and so i've always had uh, fond memories of yeah. the city of garland because yeah. of that and so we've been here this entire time but we started out with one bay it's 1200 square feet and eventually In this we, building and this building and we uh, we expanded up to 8800 square feet for the entire building uh, eventually, we have another building also where we have our CNC milling machines. We have two uh, CNC machines over there. And what are those for? Those are for making parts. Yeah. And so for modifying, uh, and for modifying rotary engines, like for going from a two millimeter to a three millimeter apex seal, things of that nature. Yeah. And so that's just the the whole market just started to change. You know, and in the early '90s, uh, we wanted to um, become you know. A, be able to make the cars perform better. And so we, uh, we built the first Underhood supercharger kit. Uh, we teamed with a company called Camden Superchargers down in Austin, and we did all the R&D, all the fitment, and everything to make a Underhood supercharger for the first generation RX-7s. And that, uh, that supercharger worked great, but then Texas, like so many other states, adopted uh, emission laws and it couldn't pass those there's no way so it didn't it didn't do as well as what we wanted it to do do rotary engines in
0: general they're not as well performing when it comes to emissions without you being careful. Or how does that work? It's tough. Rotary, yeah.
1: uh, rotary engines and emissions. That's probably the that's the one thing that they're always chasing their tail on because they have a very large surface area internally, and so that makes where a lot of heat gets pulled away. You uh, you don't. Uh, they also uh... have a lot of overlap between the intake and the exhaust ports on all except the rx eight the rx eight is a different style of intake ports intake and exhaust ports that do not have overlap but that lack of uh, that overlap made it where they have to run an air pump to be able to get the emissions where it needs to be so you have to have an air pump you have to have a catalytic converter you have to very carefully tune the air fuel ratio yeah. of it and get and and keep on top of that otherwise the emissions just go okay, off of the chart now today all the cars are over tw- all of the older ones are over 25 years old yeah. so just that was a really nice anymore.
0: That was a really nice uh, inspection, state inspection I did last year. It's yeah. like makes it easy, four dollars, and we just in and out. Yeah, that was nice. Um, so you guys did, you know, the supercharger kit was one thing, but I remember seeing, you know, you guys getting a bunch of little, little, a bunch of trophies, oh, and yeah. you had you built drag cars and you did it. Mm-hmm. Like, where did that fit into the history of the shop?
1: That came in uh, as we get closer to the. The late '90s, okay, when the import scene really took off. This is before the Fast and the Furious, yeah, because you can almost use that as a dividing point. You have, uh, you know, the pre uh, Fast and Furious days. The mid '90s was yeah. when uh, Japanese car culture was really That's coming crazy. into its stride. Uh, the Supra versus RX-7 wars, the 300ZX twin turbo, yeah. the 3000 GT VR4. Everybody was muscling to try and figure out. Who was the coolest who was the fastest and um, and we were a hundred percent rotary always we yeah. never did any sort of motor swaps or anything uh, anything like that and you uh, there was the the drag racing scene began in about 96 and that was uh, you know we're uh, we had been uh, we'd been in business for long enough and had uh, locally you had engine management an engine management company Haltech had been yeah. created they were born in Garland Texas also in I 1988 didn't know that. yep eventually they uh, they went to Australia the company moved over there and they're on their third owners at this point the person who founded Haltech was actually a person who invented i think it was the mouse or the trackball one or the oh, other so but yeah th- didn't do well for himself at all no <laughs> so they that was um, that was a a, a a helpful product to have around because Haltech was uh, was one of the first programmable standalone engine management systems and having that local allowed us to be able to do things with rotary engines that you couldn't do before mm. and that's Turbocharging was uh, and street racing. I hate uh, I hate to use the word that we participated in street racing, but yeah. we did. Yeah. Everybody did in yeah. that era. Back then, it was a thing. It was a really really big thing, and so we would participate in street racing and tuning cars and building things and putting together combinations that people hadn't seen. And it just started developing into where people wanted to have something that was organized, where they could, they could get together and go and, and, uh, and compete. And the, uh, you had, um, you had uh, events that were in Houston and in, in Dallas, and eventually we, uh, we started participating in a small way. And then we started winning, and we started doing extremely well, and it eventually got to the point where we won first, the, uh, we started doing a national tour with 20, 26 events a year. and wow. Between IDRC, Naira, Nopi, the, um, and NHRA, which yeah. was the big one. Yeah. And we uh, won the IDRC championship in year 2000, and then year 2001, we won completely we went undefeated oh, for the wow. year and then uh in 2002 rules started changing some we backed off a little bit on racing then starting in 2003 we pulled uh, we started helping others more than we were actually going out and racing ourselves because gotcha. the, the shop got so busy in those days that it was just easier to just help people like Ken Skippers he's a local that um that uh did very well in street tire all motor and also modified class and we used to uh, Help out with Abel Ibera. He's uh, pretty legendary in the okay. RX7 and RX8 drag racing world.
0: Yeah, did did the racing bring the people to the shop? Or there was, was
1: there was a lot of it. There was yeah. from that. Uh, we always kept our racing, our participation directly what we drove. We did street tire. Yeah, because okay. anything further than street tire, we felt was just, you know, modified class and pro class is interesting and neat but the market wasn't there people were not willing to take their their third generation or their second generation rx7 and gut it completely and turn yeah. it into something that you can't drive on the streets yeah. especially in the non-emission or in the emission era mm-hmm. and in those days you really uh, we wanted to have a street tire car that they could see that's the high water mark that's and the best that we ever did was a about a nine oh at about a hundred and about a hundred and fifty eight, hundred and fifty nine yeah. miles an hour. Which is fast for yeah, a car. That's really fast. With an all Mazda drivetrain. Yeah. Two rotor engine, Mazda transmission, Mazda differential. Uh, now they had a COS limited slip inside of it and it had strengthened axles but it's an independent rear suspension and you had to everything you had to check everything run by run data log it all and the data logging today and the equipment today is so much better than it was back Mm -hmm. then but it was uh we did well with it yeah a lot of fun
0: yeah all right so that if it sounds like that heavy racing season started winding down a bit and then you started helping people race yes. and then which then matured into okay we're we're a full service rotary shop Where yes. if i'm so you'll take a guy like me that's just like hey i'm i'm just taking a car i want to make it more reliable streetable i'm not racing this thing but i do want to be able to drive fast and feel confident about it right? yes. like something's not going to blow up all the way to some of those racing legends which is just like i just need it to last a day i need yeah. max power <laughs> yep and make whatever you need to make um, so as we kind of come into more recent history, tell me about what rotary performance is today from a philosophy standpoint and, and kind of what you see happening moving forward.
1: Well, through. the trend line has sharply gone to, um, to two different directions with the rotaries. You have the, the nostalgia and restoration crowd. And then you have in the other direction the street rod crowd. Okay. And so they. They meet a little bit in the middle, but not too much. They mostly are uh, isolated from each other. You have the people that are looking for. You have some people that are looking for a concourse to elegance, all original third generation RX seven, second generation RX seven, a little bit with the RX eights. You know the R three is a popular RX eight for yeah. a collect uh, for being a little bit of a collectible yeah. in that world, but people are looking for the car that they've always wanted and they're trying to make it into that direction now heavier than they ever have before part of that is fueled by you have uh, anything that's set uh, the third generation rx sevens and older they're all exempt for emissions in texas and in most states so they don't have to worry about having the car with the catalytic converter on it having to pass yearly um, uh, state inspections you can get an antique plate you can go for 5 years and uh, and get you don't even have to get the car inspected at all with that Oh and no so kidding! With an antique plate. With an antique plate. Oh, that's maybe right. I'll look
0: into that. Yeah,
1: it's pretty cool. Yeah. Now it limits what you can use the car for. You can right. still you can still drive it when you want to. Most of us don't drive these cars we more don't. than a thousand to two thousand miles yeah. a year, maybe. I think that's what I'm putting
0: on it. It's yeah, like a 1500 like because I do want to keep things lubricated and I want to keep things running, keep you know that kind of thing, but. It's mostly highway jaunts, and it's mostly because, like, I want to keep things running. I mean, if I really was not watching it, I probably wouldn't put more than 1,000 miles on that car per year, which it,
1: you know. I wish I did, but yeah, <laughs> it's and there's the where realities it's of it. It's yeah. um, especially if we're talking about a third generation RX7, the practicality of the car. Most of us have nice wheels on the car. The cars do not have a belt molding on them around where it has uh, any sort of rubber protection from uh, from door dings. In Texas uh, yeah. and in many states, there's a lot of pickup trucks. Yep. You don't want to park it anywhere near anybody. So you drive the car deliberately, sunny yeah. days and weekends. Yeah. You don't drive it on the ice. You don't drive it in rainstorms. And so it's it limits when you drive the car. But when you drive them, people will stand and pose with the cars. <laughs> they will want to take a picture with the car. They'll want you to take a picture of them with yeah. your car. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's neat. It's it a lot neat. of fun, but it's the the world of rotaries is getting to uh, to where people are they're seeking out the car that they've always wanted. They're looking for one of their youth one that they've seen on television, something and they're trying to create it. Mm-hmm. And so it does divide into those two different paths. Wow. So if they're trying to recreate something from their youth, they want to have a perfect condition first generation. Maybe some wheels on it, maybe a, a, a couple of little mods to the exhaust, but not much. The uh, second generation, it's about the same for that also. The convertibles, that's the only years where there's convertibles. And so you have people that's, uh, they're, it's an exciting time for people that are very passionate about rotaries because there is a lot of things that are out there for them. Yeah.
0: Do you find that there are a lot of shops that that are cropping up to support rotaries now or do you feel like people have really kept it a niche a niche in terms of
1: it's more of a niche than anything else because uh, the the players that have been in it for the longest time are still in it okay they haven't changed much there are some that service a specific group that only deal with either road racing or they only deal with one generation of rotary But the people that really have knowledge or abilities across multiple generations, they're the same.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: And they're they're sprinkled across the U.S. There's just not many of them.
0: There's not. There's not. I felt really fortunate. And that was one of the reasons I bought um, the RX-7 was because you guys were here. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, we have somebody local that can take care of it that I trust. Um, It works out. And I just want to own it and see. Maybe I'll own it for a year. Maybe I'll own it for more. And... We're nine years strong. now. Nine years, in the <laughs> blink of an eye. I know, I know. Uh, and so you see that trend line continuing. You see yeah, the guys that are really going towards the restoring it. Um, you know, kind of recreating what they had in their youth versus the guys that are like, oh no, I want to. We're going to use this thing. Yes, it's not going to be a sit in the garage type of car. Yeah,
1: it's a it's a battle of two philosophies. We work with both of them. Uh, they, you know, we we are. That we are, without a doubt, the most gifted at restoration-type work. There's no doubt that we know the twin-turbo, third-generation RX-7, or any of the turbo twos, any of the convertibles. All of those, we know those cars in nauseating detail, yeah. down to the last nut, bolt, and screw. So those uh, we have a well-choreographed uh, backlog of cars that are coming in for that type of work through the middle of next year. Yeah. So because there's only so many of those you can do at any time. Yeah. And you you can't leave them outside, so you have to bring them in as one leaves. Mm. And so it limits the number of those that you can do. So you, and but the the higher, you know, the higher horsepower the more wild builds those we do those also uh you know, one at a time, but uh, those there are some pretty raunchy RX-7s out there nowadays. Yeah. There's a lot of three-rotors and four-rotors and I've seen else. some
0: stuff on <laughs> Yeah.
1: Yeah, so they're getting pretty wild. Yeah. You know, the billet rotary engines, the the the, th- the costs for doing that, people are really starting to look at the car and say, you know what, I'm going to do it. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, you look at some of the prices of what, uh, what nice examples of an RX-7 go for nowadays, they've just been going up and I going know. up. They, amazing.
0: I was a little surprised by. It. it went up even more than I thought it would. Yeah. Uh in terms of how quickly it it accelerated. It's
1: been 20% a year. Yeah. for 5 years. That's pretty nuts. Yeah. And so they've over doubled themselves. Yeah. in the, in just 5 years. Yeah. So it's it's amazing.
0: I remember when you can find could find like a really good condition one for like 13 grand. Yep. 12 13 grand will buy you like more rare colors like the mm-hmm. yellow or the white, the chased white, you know, it's just, and it's now amazing. forget it.
1: The yellows, you just don't see them anymore. You know. There's so few and far between. I've owned several of those and, um, yeah, you just don't see them. Yeah. You know, we've got a couple of clients with them and all of them are in great shape, but, um, yeah, that's one of the colors that's, uh, that's on the endangered list yeah. for sure. Yeah. There's a lot of red, a lot of Montego blue. Right. Right.
0: Okay. So, so let's talk a little bit about the camps. I want to transition into this idea of the rotary anyway. So the guys that do the resto work or like guys like me, they're just street driving and mm-hmm. this and that. We're like, Hey, we'll take care of the car. We'll maintain it. We'll do this. We'll keep things as fresh and as new as they can. Easy for us to do. Cause we don't put that much mileage. Mm-hmm. It's on sunny days and all that stuff. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, when I'm reading on the internet about rotaries, every time somebody highlights an RX 7 or an RX 8, whatever generation, you know, the second, by the second or third comment, people are talking about how rotor, you know, rotary engines are trash, right? And they're, they're not reliable. They don't make any power. They don't do this. They don't do that. Um, and, you know, I, I look at my ownership experience, and granted, I'm not daily driving the car. Um, and I do kind of stay on top of things, but by and large, my ownership experience has been that that car has been bulletproof like once, but we did have to baseline it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had that oil leak in the back of the engine and we were like, Hey, as long as we're dropping the engine, we might as well just do the seals and do all that stuff too. Um, but outside of that, it hasn't stumbled it has it's had these little things where you're just like oh that doesn't sound right so i'm going to talk to chris about that let Mm -hmm. me see what that is is it something i should take care of um but let's let's talk about those guys that like use the car you know they might do road races they might do this and that how does the reputation of an unreliable engine reconcile against the guys that are actually using it and and using it hard
1: well you've got people that have unrealistic expectations there are some people that and there are abusers and uh... That, that that cause a little bit of havoc in the rotary world a big part of it though is people buying a car at an inopportune time because most people don't sell these cars unless some, uh, there's a lot of people that they sell the car whenever they know that something is going wrong with it they may not know for a fact that the engine is is on its dying days but they are uh, suspecting that things aren't going well for the car and so they sell the car to some uh, some unsuspecting person and then that person immediately puts it into full service and imme- and then in short order they have a problem and this was particularly bad on second generations and RX7s and on RX8s cars that people really drove a lot uh, the third generations; those have always been a car. There's not that many people that drove those cars obscene amount of miles, even when they are new cars. Um, there's also people that put on upgrades that are out of order. Okay. They do things. They put, uh, put a straight through exhaust on a on a third generation RX seven with the with the twin turbos, and then put a uh, put a simplified intake on it. It's a recipe for disaster. You don't have enough fuel for it. The computer, the uh, the fuel pump. It'll just you will break the motor in short order. No kidding. If you do that, and so people can place an order, bolt some things on, and kill the car, and that's not that different than on uh, on doing things like that on other cars. You can break a nine eleven very easily. People don't realize how fragile those cars can really be. No kidding. Because they
0: have a reputation for being really well engineered. They are well engineered, but but the people that they have, have, they're
1: indoctrinated into maintaining the car and the car and the culture of what is needed to keep that car going got it and it took a while it's taken a long time for the rotary engine world to finally go all the way around and go full circle if you're going to own one you really need to know what you what you're buying and if you're buying it you have to uh you have to go in there not with in an adversarial way, but go with an expectation that look at the car and make sure that what the person is telling me about the car is actually meeting up with what what it really is, and get a get a compression test done on the car because the engine is the heart of the uh, is the heart of the vehicle, and that is the most common area where people will try and skate a car through and. Then you, you run into a lot of, like the third generation RX-7s, you have a lot of JDM cars that are coming in. Mm-hmm. Those just expect that you're going to have to go through the motor. Not because the engine has low compression, but more like what happened to your car, where it's leaking from everywhere. All the gaskets are the original paper gaskets. Yeah. and And it just makes sense to just update everything. Yeah. But as far as the reputation of the engines, they... Some of it is uh, in the case of the rx8 is that Mazda set themselves up for disaster because of the emissions laws in the US and the uh, the expectations of the people they uh, they ran the the coolant temperatures too high the oil temperatures were too high the amount of oil metering you mean that like they normal into it.
0: under normal operation under
1: normal operating temperatures the thermostated temperatures were too high you can double the life of an rx8 engine just by uh, you can uh, you can uh, lower the temperatures that the fans kick on at you can uh, and then put in a different oil cooler thermostat it, the rx8 was the only, Rotary car that didn't have a 165 degree oil thermostat. All uh, they can, the RX8 has theirs at 215 degrees, mm-hmm. and so it's not pulling as much heat out of the engine. Then you throw on top of it that they were very chintzy on how much oil they injected into the engine for the uh, the oil metering because rotary engines that's in a, that's in a, that's just fuel oil by they, they burn oil like yeah. a two stroke. Yeah, and. They put very little in on the RX-8. That causes accelerated wear along with the heat. And then you throw on top of it, they told them to run 5W20 oil. 1030 is what the normally aspirated cars run much better on. You change those things, and some of it's just a discipline change. It doesn't mm. cost any extra to yeah, run 1030 sure. versus 520. Yeah, And the other things are very cheap to do. Yeah. And it doubles the life at a minimum. So let's talk about that. Because what's the
0: average expectancy of a rotary engine in terms of mileage like what what do you you know you have the people that don't take care of them and they'll mm-hmm. last a lot less you'll have people that really take care of them they'll last a lot more so mm-hmm. what's the average I would say lifespan. that we,
1: um, if we're talking about it, uh, it breaks into groups of, of rotaries. If you're talking about okay, the most reliable of them all, uh, Which the is? the uh, the eighty four eighty five GSLSE, the only thirteen B first gen ever, okay. Mazda's first fuel injected cars, um, rock solid. Those cars died of collisions. They didn't die of engine failures. They just don't fail. They had four oil injectors, just absolutely solid cars. They, uh, they go at least 200,000 miles. Oh,
0: wow. Okay. And so they
1: go a long ways. Then uh, The next one would be the 86 to 88 non-turbo, 200,000 miles out of those. Really? Also, and they would die mostly of overheats. There's a heater hose. that's located below the oil filter area that would rupture while people are driving, and the and the car would overheat, and they would and it would hurt the engine. Uh, no, uh, hardly anybody ever had an apex seal failure on those. Hardly any of them died of low compression. Huh. They just they just went forever. They um, then they started the electronic oil metering pump era, starting in eighty nine. In that era, those the automatics they had a tough road to hoe that's where we that's where we uh, began pre-mixing it was in that it was in that era and if you pre-mix the cars they'll be just like all the other ones they'll what, go is
0: a what does a pre-mix do for those that don't know
1: uh, pre-mixing is where you're adding a light bodied oil to the gasoline it's like on a two-stroke like um, yard equipment where you have to do that for a chainsaw or a line trimmer. By adding the oil, uh, what, the, what the oil is used for in a rotary engine, that oil creates a sacrificial barrier that is on the ro- between the rotor housing and the apex seal. Okay. And it helps to insulate the seal from heat and it helps to lubricate the seal so that it doesn't have as much of a... It doesn't skip across the surfaces, yeah. uh, across the top and the bottom of the rotor housing. And if you, you just need enough of that lubrication to be able to keep the seals happy any more than that... You just make the make the spark plugs foul a little more than they need to, and it starts to um, it starts to clog up the catalytic converter a little bit. But if you don't have enough of it, it it causes a lot of damage to the engine. It wears very quickly. Okay. And uh, they were injecting they just didn't inject enough oil with the 89 to 91 RX7s the second that late second generation oh, group i love the way those look
0: those were the ones with the the round, the round tail, tail lights, lights. Oh,
1: exactly man. that's they they really nailed it on styling Yeah. and they uh, they have uh, the the ultra rares for us is the uh, is the you know like the turbo 2s of that era 89 to 91 turbo 2s they hardly imported any of those uh, in japan Everything 89 to 91 was turbocharged. Whether it was convertible, automatic, didn't matter. Oh, we never wow. had a turbo convertible in the United States, but uh, they have. You know, the the premixing changed everything for the 89 to 91s. They'll go 200,000 miles. Also, if you premix them, if you don't, 100,000 miles is is the most. Okay. And then a lot of them, it'll be 60,000 miles, depending on how you drove it. Was it summertime driving with a lot of stop and go, a lot of wear and tear on the engine? So that really started to to grate on people. and They didn't. Uh, that that wasn't that wasn't good for you know, their rep. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
0: Because by yeah. that time, you had Hondas and Nissans were at the top of their game, and yes. everybody was running crazy mileage with no issues. Yep. Well, relatively speaking, they all had their issues. They do. They, I used to own if you it get behind the, the scenes. <laughs> you get you you hear things yeah. from people. Yeah. Okay. So. 200k if, if it's certain models um once you get a little bit into where they did the oil injection and the oil metering that mm-hmm. can decrease the life uh if you don't take certain precautions right yes. um so if i'm looking at uh what's what typically so you talked about the early ones never had apex seals going on that's the thing that i hear the most about when i'm online is apex mm-hmm. seals blow your motor blows and poof there
1: goes your thing so 12A's did that also who that's did something we did we didn't mention about that's on the first generations there's the 12a carbureted engines which that is a platform that goes all the way back to the beginning of mazda okay and so with the four barrel Niki carburetor and that engine was uh, from 79 to 85 most of the first generations are 12 a's yeah and those did die of apex seal failures oh no kidding the 79 and 80s would go bad from oil consumption they didn't have hardened Side plates and they would cause um, and uh, other slight differences inside of them. They would die of oil consumption. You'd have to do a rebuild on them or replace the engine with another one, a used engine. But the eighty-one to eighty-fives, those uh, in particular, the rear rotor, because uh, the there's more heat on the rear rotor than there is in the front. That one, the apex seals would get old and wear to a certain point, and it would they would snap. They they hadn't hardened the grooves of the of the rotors yet. That didn't start until eighty nine. They didn't have the two millimeter apex seals, reducing the amount of mass that was in there. That didn't start till eighty six. There's and so there's uh, and there's a lot of reasons, but they would uh, they would die of apex seal failures typically somewhere around one hundred and fifty thousand miles. Okay, but still they went a long ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So certain models you might
0: have a hose go bad. Um, once you get into the later years, apex seals are a real thing. Well, it, actually even it's from it's the, the beginning charge,
1: really the one that gets people is the turbocharged yeah. cars. So tell they me were about that. Absolutely. The turbocharged rotaries forced induction is unforgiving by its nature, but turbocharged mm-hmm. rotaries forced induction rotaries are absolutely unforgiving. They do not tolerate a bad engine build. They do not tolerate detonation of any type, any detonation motors over It just brakes. Huh. And so that's where people get into the reputation of the uh, of the engine is the turbo era. You buy a turbo two, you do a few mods to it. You didn't realize that you know that you you've got a turbo two. Uh, most of the, uh, you have a lot of turbo twos that their engines would fail at night, and people would say, "Why is it at night?" The main problem was was that the uh, their grounding system. They didn't get enough ground to the uh, to the fuel pump. And so, it, and you're running all the electricals at night. You're running your headlights at the very least. Frequently, it's in the winter time. You get your blower motor going, and it would cause the voltage to drop to the fuel pump, and oh, you would wow. break your and you would break your engine because of that, because <laughs> it would starve for fuel. Simple things like that. And this is in, uh, in an era where you would uh, people manufacturers would make their company. We only make exhaust parts, so we'll make a straight through exhaust system for a turbo too well they don't make the other ancillary components that make it safe to do that a better fuel pump um they would uh, and uh, engine management was in its infancy at that point that uh, you had the hks fcon was the only fuel computer that, that was a piggyback that you could put on there yeah so people would do the things that they would think of right off the bat that will make more power i'm just gonna put power. my bolt ons so i'm yeah. gonna put a straight through exhaust suddenly the boost on a five and a half psi car would jump to 12 and 14 psi and then it would taper back down to seven psi on the big end and it was a lot of fun for a little while till some night they're out there running around and boom breaks an engine Hmm. and they never and the turbo two didn't really survive that era without uh without Ruining its reputation when the car is one of the is one of Mazda's best. It really, uh, you know, they really put a lot of effort into it. It's where independent rear suspension began for Mazda, I mean, they they uh, they went to a nerdy level of detail into yeah. things like the pedals. They have uh, they have forged aluminum pedals. That's where those began was yeah. in those years. Yeah. just a lot of neat things. Yeah, in it. But um, the tur uh, the third generation RX seven whatever problems that the turbo 2 was having it put that problem on steroids because on those that everybody was absolutely chasing after the last bit of horsepower they were bolting on a straight through exhaust and a and a free-flowing intake and breaking their engines taking it back to mazda getting warranties some of the time some of the time not they uh, and fortunately engine management caught up with those cars Mm -hmm. the power fc changed everything for the third generation it probably saved the third generation that and the fast and the furious
0: yeah how does how did it how did it save that generation i have one of those in my Mm -hmm. car and I've noticed, even without getting into the technical details, I've noticed the drive is different. Yes. But what did it do? What do you do with an FC that saves the car?
1: The Power FC, uh, you know, all the other things you could get uh, to fit into the car to make uh, to fix its woes, whether it be a fuel pump, you could get a, dense, a bigger Denso fuel pump, put it in there. You could... You could. Uh, uh, there was already a real strong following for intake and exhaust, but engine management was was the biggest problem. With uh, because Mazda has an oil metering pump on the car, that is unique to the vehicle. Nobody had an oil metering pump control in any of the aftermarket engine management systems. We were putting Haltechs on them. At that point it was the E6, mm, I think it was the E6S was one that we were doing, then the E6K. And there were fine engine management systems but they didn't control the oil metering pump. So a street guy couldn't use it. Then and, and the Power FC was, uh, was it's an, a, a PEXI product and Apex had been in, in uh, Japan since the third generation was a new car and when they came out with that computer they emulated the computer they took they took the factory computer fired all the inputs measured what the outputs were created a map that was like the original but did it with newer architecture the original computer was a simple 8-bit computer okay and so that 8-bit computer was really tasked to be able to run all the pollution controls sequential twin turbochargers and an oil metering pump the um and the idle control speed density uh the all of those things it's amazing that they were able to do that with the eight bit ecu with the power fc is 16 bit and with that they they gave it Sequential secondary injection, so that the secondary injectors can be operated independently. They don't just change the pulse width. I know we're getting into the nerdy weeds of this, but it made for a nice seamless transition when the secondary injectors kick in. It it controlled, it ran the car just like stock. It controlled the the, uh, sequential twin turbos as they're supposed to be, and it had the the oil metering uh, pump control, and it works great. So yeah. we could raise oil metering rates so we're injecting more oil for the uh, for the Apex seals. We were able to have fan control so we could lower the temperatures. Yeah. We were able to do everything that was necessary to be able to tune the car for the street guy. And it is a wonderful platform for anybody that wants to get uh, anything from just a person who wants to have a nice, restoration car that drives better to one that's up to a single turbo up to i'd say the 350 to 400 horsepower range anything that gets to 400 and beyond you really need to get to something that has onboard uh, data logging gotcha. and other features you'll probably want flex fuel and other things that are in the more advanced ECUs nowadays okay
0: so you have okay so the the things that are real um Engine life can vary depending on what you have in the history, kind of like any car, really. Mm-hmm. Some of them are more durable or more uh, resistant to people not treating them well. But it's definitely not a Honda Civic. But at the same time, it can have real longevity to it if you maintain it. Yes. Right. So apex seals are one thing. Um, the kind of keeping the car lubricated with oil mm-hmm. is another thing. Um cooling systems i mean what are the other components like if i'm getting into this Mm -hmm. because apparently heat heat is a very important part of owning a rotary you got to be very sensitive to heat which you don't necessarily my other car is bmw i got to be sensitive to heat on those too Mm -hmm. (laughs) so but in a different way like here i'm much more cognizant of what my temperatures look like if the car sounds a little different if it's stumbling a little bit at idle i notice it a lot more so you know, seals are one thing. Cooling is another thing. We, You know, and there are mods you can do around that. Um, but what I'm getting, though, is, okay, maybe it's not going to go 500,000 miles. You know, it's not mm-hmm. a Lexus, right? Um, but at the same time, you can get real life out of them, and especially if you make small tweaks to other parts of the car then the thing that it's infamous for the seals mm-hmm. um actually live a pretty long life
1: they do if they're kept in their if they're kept in their um window of happiness yeah. uh, of a temperature and um uh, and realistic boost pressures and putting the correct octane of gasoline into it and allowed to warm up and cool off and they, they go a long ways they, yeah. they're used so much in motorsports if they were not uh, if if they were that unreliable, why are they so prevalent in some of the harshest environments? They were the first Japanese car company to win the twenty four Hours of Le Mans, and that yeah. was in ninety one. Yeah, and, and uh, that car's legendary. One end, uh, one engine did yeah. that, and they won it overall. And so yeah. it's and that was with three millimeter apex seals and premixed, and uh, I mean it's it's things that they use the technology of their time the technology today is even better and so they can be and an excellent platform to work with, as long as the people are wanting to be engaged with the car. But you hit upon one of the things that is very important for them: they have to stay cool. Mm-hmm. They, uh, the engines, it's a, it's a small, it's a beer keg-sized engine, and all of them are roughly the same size, with the exception of the three rotors and beyond. Yeah. But the two rotor engines are all very small engines; they're not very heavy, and since they don't have much metal mass to them they don't have anywhere for the heat to go to other than into a fast-moving, high-capacity cooling system for both coolant, engine coolant, and oil. So all of them have at least one oil cooler, and some of them have two oil coolers. And you need to make sure that all of those systems are working correctly. If you have a... Um, if you have, some are, uh, are more prone to uh, overheating than others, and there's a workaround for all of them
0: yeah so if I'm going to that's all great information so if I'm an enthusiast I've never had a rotary before um, but I'm kind of interested I like the way they look I like the way they sound Um, what should be my expectations going into this because we've touched on a few things so this idea of being able to tune the car what Mm -hmm. should I expect in terms of tuning the car what should I expect in terms of um, the things that I would have to do with a rotary that I wouldn't have to do with just a standard piston car. Right. right. Um, walk me through some of the high level things that I, I should be educated about before I actually pull the trigger on one of those cars.
1: Well, uh, on a rotary car, first you have, to, you have to decide whether this is a, you know, your older rotaries, you really should just commit yourself to the fact that this is a second car. Okay. This is not your primary uh, and why transportation. is that? Uh, The parts are rare enough, and the work that has gone into keeping the car in the condition that you buy it in or in the condition that you will be keeping it in, either way, you will not want to subject that to... Uh, you know, bad weather and bad drivers. We're in the Dallas area, and yeah. it's awful here. Yeah. And so, you really want to drive your car on deliberate days for pleasure, yeah. more than for because it's your transportation.
0: And one of the things that I learned there is it's not even about mechanical parts. If like we had to replace the AC compressor, oh yes, and the AC unit, you know the thing. And finding interior parts mm-hmm. is crazy, even on the F the the third generation which is in the 90s good luck you know like finding parts we had to rebuild that compressor twice eventually we had to just suck it up and buy a brand new one from Mazda which thankfully they make it yeah
1: right we're lucky to be able to get one yeah and there's uh and the as there's been a need the uh the parts have have become more available okay but some of the things as uh when you're looking for an older car the interior is the most important thing because in reality, for most of the Japanese manufacturers, the left-hand drive market is the red-headed stepchild. Yeah. And so uh, they they phase out the interior pieces very quickly. And that was, uh, that was exactly that way with the third generation, RX-7. The second generation, the parts have remained for, I mean, to this day, you can still get... A, a lot of the interior. Oh, no, it's I'm just kidding. amazing that that so much of it still exists. Now, you're not going to get a dashboard. Right. But you don't need a dashboard. You just need to have the bezel that goes around the radio and you need to have the 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 demister grills and things like that. Some of those were still available for the 3rd gen, but most of the plastics the the left-hand drive specific ones, the door insert ones, the one that that's around the radio those are gone yeah they just don't make them anymore and Mazda has been speaking of of starting to bring back phasing back in those restoration type parts and that's on our short list of things those and some of the other crash parts that they don't make anymore
0: yeah okay so commit to yourself unless you're driving an rx-8 commit yourself to the fact that there's going to be a second car be aware that parts are going to be maybe harder to find than some of your normal cars
1: um what else well uh, keep in mind that uh, i mean you hit one of the things right there that the rx8 you can daily drive those people do it all the time most of those are people's only form of transportation some people have them as second cars or third cars some of them are used for road racing or it's a collectible but they are mostly their people's primary form of transportation just like the old first generations and second generations used to be but those were the only cars that were built in the modern era they have you know double and triple door seals they're very quiet and smooth to drive they have realistic wheel and tire sizes they have um they have bolt patterns that aren't odd first generations have very odd bolt Mm -hmm. patterns their wheels they're 13 inch most of them they're carbureted distributor all those types of things those are more antique like um but the uh the uh, the rx8 you can drive that every day it's made to drive at 80 miles an hour a third generation is comfortable driving at 80 miles an hour no problem but a second generation yeah you can do that with no problem first generation man no way it's yeah. tough especially yeah. the carbureted ones they're in the 4500 5000 rpm range yeah. at that point yeah it's yeah, crazy yeah. Yeah. So your older ones, you have to look at it from that sort of a paradigm. You have to you look at it with those eyes. The, uh, the RX-8, you can drive it every day. Just I would, If I was going to drive one every day, I'd hit every mark off of the things that are for the durability modifications. Yeah. Which are sure not large are
0: things. No. They're, they're small things, and if you do them, the car will go.
1: Yeah, and there's things that as the car, as it needs to be serviced, like if it needs to have the radiator replaced, put an aluminum radiator in there. Yeah. Uh, rather than the original plastic and aluminum one that's on every car today. Right.
0: Right. Right. Okay. So understand the parts, understand you'll probably use it as a second car except for the condition that, or depending on if you're driving mm-hmm. an RX8. What else should I know? Um
1: when looking for them, you make sure that you're bu- uh, that you're looking for a car that um, that people have cared for. Yeah. You know, that's the thing that you really are looking for. Yeah. And uh, try to ferret that out. And it, it costs a little more money to buy one of those cars. But um, you know, there's there's now that the car values have been going up, the thing that you have to be watching for is there's a lot of people that have kept a car in their garage. Hopefully it's in their garage. A lot of them, it had a car cover beside the house or no car cover at all. They're going to just cash in that car now that the values are going up it's very difficult to bring those cars back to life oh, it's it is. so expensive yeah because a lot of the parts um you know some of the things like fortunately fuel level sending units are still around but gas tanks not all the cars gas tanks are still available if you need to replace the gas tank you go and scour the earth until you find one oh, wow. and then you have to get it cleaned and lined and get it prepared and then you need to bring if it's a if you're going to bring back to life a first generation just to hit on something that is a common occurrence. The uh, the carbureted ones. People are not used to driving carbureted cars anymore. We've been driving fuel injected yeah. cars for just too long. Yeah. And so if you are nostalgic about a carbureted first generation, then uh, you are going to uh, need to commit to driving that car at least once every other week. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, especially with the, you know, with the fuel we have today, the ethanol fuel, the E10 gasoline, is very bad for carbureted vehicles the rubber parts were never made for it and especially if you don't constantly keep fresh fuel flowing through it it causes havoc for the car kidding okay i you know
0: that's something i actually heard on when we took out the plugs on the bmw is the same thing it eats up plugs and if you don't change your plugs out then you're changing pack coil packs out and it gets all messy and those older cars have a really hard time with it they do it's kind of and
1: so it's a it's a narrow threshold and if you if you if you drive it often enough and if you've brought it up to snuff then the cars are actually wonderful they're yeah. they're a lot of fun to drive yeah. uh, i the first generations it's taken uh, 15 years for them to come back in vogue yeah. but they're coming back in force they people kind of are, really, are. they are they really, really are. people are seeking them out and yeah. if you look i'm sure that you've watched like I'm bring a trailer yeah. you watch the values of cars i mean there's a GSLSE right. uh, that's an 8485 model or as people call it the five letter yeah the the five letter first gen it sold this week for $15,000 yeah. roughly and there's one that sold for 20 something Actually, I think it was $30,000, but it was like new. Yeah. 6,000-mile
0: car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that actually, okay, so understanding, so some depending on, and I've heard that about rotaries in general, like you can't let it sit for two weeks because you don't want the oil to just drain off of all the parts and sit at the bottom, and then when you start it up it doesn't have the lubrication it needs
1: on startup is that true it is true okay so it's true because you have you think of the rotor the rotors are vertical and their oil seals are vertical and so the oil any oil that gets past the oil seals will go and collect in the in the chambers at the bottom it was more of a problem on the older rotaries the newer ones they they worked in the metallurgy the style of the seals the angles of things whether they're made out of the type of springs what it's riding against they worked a lot on that and yeah. that problem has dropped down to a minimum but it's still true that you want to start the car periodically enough to be able to circulate the fluids make sure that there's no uh, no oil building up in strange places on the fuel injected cars also the ethanol issue is a real problem with those mm. as well okay. it's just our it's just our reality of today yeah. we need to drive our classic cars yeah we just yeah. have to but it's the carbureted cars that are absolutely unforgiving it will It'll make the car a parked car in very short order. Mm-hmm. And it's expensive to work with carburetors. We're going to fuel inject all of those, you know, make a retrofit kit that oh, goes onto okay. those so that we just pull the uh, you asked about what we do with the with the milling machine. Yeah. We're making a a plate that goes underneath the, the carburetor that goes in there. You put two fuel injectors in it, a computer off to the side. It looks like you saw the carburetor yeah. on there. Yeah. But it's fuel injected. Huh. And oh, so that cool. will make their lot in life a lot better.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, and we talk about or we see these people that will take a classic car like that and either put like an electric power plant or this and mm-hmm. that and the other. And the whole idea is to lengthen the life of the shell of that car. Like right. Let's take care of the weaknesses. We don't have the gas that we used to have. We don't have this that we used to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and the car, the environment is just not conducive to that car staying alive. So let's do what we can to do that. Yes. You know? I love that you guys are doing that. So, Um. Yeah. Great stuff. Okay. So parts availability, you should drive it, especially if the older the car is, the more aware you should be that you should be driving that car. Um, let's just say once a week, once every couple of weeks at the most, um, you should understand that it's very heat sensitive. Um, you know, more, and I feel like that whole thing, it gets amplified by two things, the heat that the rotary is running by itself. And then if you have a turbo, that's all you're pushing through it is yes. additional heat. So being very sensitive to heat um, might be a little bit different than what you would have in a normal car. Um, and then, you know, kind of understanding, like if you're the V8 guy that is used to instant torque and this and that, you're n- not getting that with a rotary, are you? No, you're not.
1: Yeah, They, d- they don't have a lot of low-end torque. They have a very long, flat power band and that is where they make their power and it's not unlike say a 600 cc sport bike versus the leader bike yeah challenge and the uh you know the 600 cc can go to 16,000 rpms without any uh without any doubt and um it it it, rotaries work with rpm more than they do with with torque they do make torque but it's uh, it's just a it's just a flat
0: Now, do they they like revs in the sense that they're comfortable at at revs? They don't, like, break down because of the heat, because of the additional heat and all of that other stuff are they since their their power curve is very linear that way are they really comfortable in the high revs they are as long, as long as
1: the engine is in good is in good condition is as, as the apex seal the apex seal is a blade seal it's a vane seal and as it wears it gets shorter and shorter and if you have one that's uh and it's Later days, that seal could be half the height of what it originally was, it. and it doesn't have much of the wall of the rotor to be able to be able to stabilize it, and so it can oscillate and cause it to break. But mm-hmm. I mean, there are—I uh, mean—a a peripheral port engine makes its peak power in the ten thousand to uh, to eleven thousand RPM range, yeah, and so it's—they're made to rev. You, uh, they're they're well balanced. They have a um, One of the things that people don't realize is that the rotor turns at one-third of the crankshaft speed. And so it's not turning as fast as that crankshaft is whipping around. That's the part that's really turning at the high RPMs. And Mazda has a very nice precision ground, very well-balanced chromoly. Um, eccentric shaft, they yeah. did a good job on what they built and what came from the factory Yeah. on that. You don't hear about eccentric shaft failures until you get into really, really, really high horsepower rotaries. We're talking 600 plus horsepower at the wheel rotary yeah. out of 80 cubic inches.
0: Yeah. Well, good. What, what do you feel like is the
1: most enjoyable part of having a rotary? Um, like living with one, owning one. The uniqueness of it I think of it like it's a uh, like it's a, a Swiss watch yeah. it's a they are there uh, the engines are all hand-built and they, uh, they uh, there's machines involved with them but all the seals are hand fitted on them everything's hand torqued it's a it's a uh, it's a very personal engine and they, ha- uh, they require uh, unusual maintenance like a Swiss watch does, and yes, you could go out and get yourself a you know get yourself a Timex quartz watch, and it would be very accurate and get and tell time. But that's not what people are looking for. Yeah, and they're looking for something that's a little off the uh, off the beaten path, and this is pretty far off the beaten path. <laughs> and the thing that people find is the camaraderie, the people that are in the rotary world are some of the nicest people you'll ever meet because they they're all unified by an engine that they uh, they found either in their life accidentally and they fell in love with it or they deliberately went out and found it but nonetheless the people that still have the car they they love the car and all of them feel that and so when you go to events if there's anything that you're having a problem with if there's a question that you have there's some of the most open and helpful people that you'll ever meet. Yeah. I mean, you, uh, if you broke down on the side of the road, you could put a, you could put a message out on the forums. You'd probably have somebody show up with a trailer and tow you home for free okay. or, or, or let you borrow their AAA card. I'll pose yeah. like I'm the owner of the car yeah. and get you home. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. It's really I cool. That.
0: Yeah. So uh, you know what? That's a good place to land is, is the community. So tell me about you know, I know in its heyday there were there were like a couple of national Arctic Seven events and things like that. But how would somebody get plugged into the community? Is it? I remember hearing about Seven Stock, which for whatever reason I haven't been to yet. Mm-hmm. But that's that seems like the national show. It right? is that's okay.
1: that and Deals gap. Uh, gap. Those are the two biggest rotary shows around there have been other ones that have come and gone but those are the ones that have stuck around seven stock because it has mazda support okay they're based in irvine or at least their their u.s operations is based there they have a big enough footprint there that it makes sense to have the big show there yeah and and it is quite a thing to see if you have i mean any and all types of rotary and mazda rotary engine stuff from rotary pickups to cosmos to everything Shows up there for one day out of the year every single year. Huh? It's very cool.
0: That is really cool.
1: Yeah, it's like Corvettes going home to Bowling Green. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> and then Deals Gap is where. Deals Gap is uh, that's in Tennessee. Okay. There is a, a it is well known for a winding road that yeah. uh, that people enthusiasts um, all sorts of different enthusiast groups go and have a parade through. That area, and it be, it started out as just a group of yahoos wanting to do it very fast. Well, because of the uh, the the local authorities, you can't really do that anymore. Yeah. But you can. Uh, the people still use it as a as the East Coast version of um of seven stock so people get together and um and have an enthusiast uh drive through the the twisty roads then they have a car show and and guest speakers things like that it's a lot of fun oh
0: that is neat yeah i need to go hit that someday well was there anything else that you had on your mind that you thought we should talk about
1: no, just that, um, I mean, we've been, we've been here for 31 years and yeah. I cannot believe it. It's, uh, it's one <laughs> of those things. And you're never things. slow. We're not. There's yeah. always cars. We're all, we always have enough work to keep us busy at any given time. And it, and it goes through, um, through seasons of what's needed and what people are looking for and, uh, the, uh, the You know, the the people, uh, what people are looking for has changed to some degree. Uh, The people thought of the cars as something that was, oh, this is just a disposable car. That's completely gone today. People don't think of them that way anymore. It's all about people are looking for their dream car and fixing it up. And it's a neat place to find ourselves now after all of these years.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's one of those things where it's just nice to see that, um, it's gotten past simply the eccentric phase and gotten into the the cool yes phase where people are kind of actively seeking it out they know what they're getting into they know it's going to be a little higher maintenance but it's worth the experience and kind of looking looking for that boutique craft kind of thing exactly so it's it's really nice and I've really enjoyed having mine i you know i I typically go into a cart thinking that I'll probably hold on to it for a few years and then I'll kind of Move on to the next experience and do it. And I'm telling you, like that and the M3, I, I cannot bring myself to sell the cars for whatever reason. And it's just, every time you slide into them, you're like, yeah, this is it works. Yeah, and I, for me, interior design and exterior design is. I
1: just love it on that third generation. It's I one of the high water marks of styling, yeah. performance in all aspects, whether it be, and that's one of the things that Mazda excels at so well, is that their balance between braking and performance and styling, it's it's very good. But yeah. then they, sometimes they just hit it especially good. Yeah. They did that with the third generation. Yeah,
0: it feels good. And it, it feels good because
1: they're kind of got their mojo
0: back in the yeah. car. The lineup that they have now is really, really nice. Um, and it's kind of nice to see somebody that people like Mazda and Subaru that have not been the most popular players, mm-hmm. but they've been building good cars for a while, finally get their due. Exactly. When it comes to that. So, well, we'll be back. I'm sure to talk a little bit more. I'd love to come back and we get, dig into the generations a little bit sure. and, and things that we see, but I really appreciate you spending the time with me. Well, thanks Lance. It's really a good conversation. And,
1: you know, come back anytime. Yeah. So where can people find you? Um, we've, uh, RotaryPerformance.com. That's our website. Uh, our phone number. You can call us. We we one of the few people on the planet that still have somebody that actually answers the phone. <laughs> but it's um, you know 3335 And you know we've been in Garland in the same place. You know our main building. It's the same building. Yeah. After all these years. So, yeah. In Garland.
0: Yeah. So find them there if you want to uh, ask. Actually, their website has some really great information um, you know if you're looking to get more educated on rotaries how to take care of them and even the different parts that you get go- there's a few parts that you guys sell that are specific to it um, But it's a great it's a great resource in and of itself and then you can go to rx7.com which i think is a message board rx7.org or rx7.com org. Yeah. yeah org where you'll find um, the community of, of rx or rotary believers yeah um, But yeah, we'll come back and we'll dig into that a little bit. Thanks again for spending the time. Thank you. All right, y'all. Have a good... uh, Well, we're heading... By the time you hear this, it will be the new year. So happy 2020. And uh, we look forward to talking to you next year too. Later.